and about five minutes into my message of the gospel, people began to heckle and joke and make sexual innuendos about the Son of God. And, and they began to say blasphemous things. And I stopped. And I rebuked those men who were there. I closed my Bible. And I left. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we move into Chapter 2 of our study of the Book of Romans and begin to look at a sin that is practiced by both believers and unbelievers in Christ. It is a trap that's easy to fall into and it can stop the Gospel message dead in its tracks. Let's join Dr. Brogy now as he begins a look at what he calls the deadliest sin in the world. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 2. If you are here for the first time, we are working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great book, and we'll be in chapter 2 for probably at least five Sundays. And so this morning, I want to speak on the subject of respectable sinners as we consider the deadliest sin in the world. I want to focus our attention on what I would consider to be the deadliest sin in the world, and I want us to do something about it. If the shoe fits, I don't want to wear it, and I don't want you to wear it. I want us to change shoes. And so I want us to understand something about a particular sin that Jesus, more often, more directly, and more severely than any other sin He spoke of, He spoke on this sin. Yet ironically, very often, this sin is one that we kind of except in our society, both inside the church and outside the church, by those who are saved and those who are lost, those who are religious and non-religious. But if you will be honest with yourself, you will probably see that maybe it's this particular sin that you have to deal with more often than any other single sin. And it's the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of pride. And this sin will often express itself in judging other people, in coming to conclusions rashly, and in fault-finding, and in putting other people down in order to elevate yourself. Paul's going to address that in our text this morning. It sounds like you have found our passage, Romans 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard, beginning now in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now don't forget, Paul has just finished in chapter 1 an indictment of those who are involved in gross public sins. And so now he turns from the hardcore pagan to the, to the moralist, to the respectable sinner, who don't really think they are all that bad, but they are in reality guilty of one of the worst sins. If you're using your note-taking outline, three simple points there in your bulletin that I want you to think about this week. First, the respectable sinner is warped in his thinking. The respectable sinner is indeed warped in his thinking. Notice the very first verse of the very first word of verse 1. It is the word therefore. 
It's a context word. Whenever you see the word therefore, you should think context. You should think, what is the word therefore, therefore? Well, it looks back to what he has just said in the first chapter. If you remember in chapter 1, in the first 17 verses, he introduced the gospel. And one of my goals for us in Romans is to be able to think our entire way through the book of Romans. And maybe I've already spent five sermons on chapter one. You're already thinking through chapter one, paragraph by paragraph. I want you to know Romans because if you know Romans, it will change your life, it will grow you, it will mature you, and it will equip you to have an impact in the lives of other people. And so in verses 1 through 17, Paul introduces the gospel. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But before someone can really appreciate the gospel, they need to see their need for the gospel. And so what he does is he takes all of society and he breaks it down into different groups. First, he dealt with a hardcore idolater. And with each group, his procedure is identical. He begins by reminding them that they have a knowledge of God, and then he confronts them with the uncomfortable fact that they have not lived up to that knowledge, and therefore they are inexcusably guilty. No one will be able to claim innocence because no one can claim ignorance. And he does that with each group that he deals with. If you remember, if you were here last week, in the last 15 verses of chapter 1, he deals with those individuals who are idolaters, homosexuals, people who are disobedient to their parents, drunkards, people who are involved in all kinds of vile behavior. There in verses 18 to 32, he's dealing with a hardcore pagan idolater. Now, some people may say, well, they don't know any better. You know, they're raised in a home where they're taught those things. What else would you expect? Listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. No one starts with a belief that there are many gods. Man starts, he's born with the knowledge that there is one God. He's monotheistic. But when a man takes the truth of God that God has given in creation and in conscience, when he sees God's divine attributes and eternal power that are seen through the things that are made and through the conscience within, and he suppresses that truth, then God gives them over to a darkened heart so that Paul can say in verse 20 of chapter 1, they are without excuse. Now, Paul's no idiot because he knows about this time when he's dealt with the hardcore pagan that there will be some people who will read it who will say, amen, brother Paul, sock it to those pagans, go after those hardcore reprobates, preach against homosexuality, idolatry, disobedience, and rebellion. What a shame to be that kind of a person. And so Paul now moves from the hardcore pagan, to the moral, religious, respectable person. Therefore, signaling a change, this group is also inexcusably guilty. He knew that some people would read those last 15 verses and say, yes, Paul, the gospel that you introduced us to, the gospel that you preached, is for the drunkard, is for the prostitute, it is for the fornicator and the adulterer, but it's not for me because we are good people. And so Paul moves now from the down and outer to the up and outer, and he begins to deal with the moralist, the moral man, 
who would be respected in his community, the moral man who might be a good father, a good provider, and may even attend church. And so Paul knows that there will be people who will read the degradation of chapter 1 and think, I may not be perfect, but I'm certainly not like those folks. I'm a pretty good person. I try to follow the golden rule, and in the end, I think God will respect that. And so Paul's going to bash that argument apart. Now, you know that there's an immediate change of group for a couple of reasons. Number one, the word therefore signals you to a change of argument. But the biggest thing is the change in pronouns. If you look, for instance, at chapter 1 and verse 20, he says, His eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. All the way through chapter 1, he's been using the third-person plural pronoun. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became foolish. Circle that in your Bible. I want you to know Romans inside and out. Go home. Study this. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. They that is, those other sinners. It's all about them. We agree, Paul. That's their argument. So anticipating their argument, Paul begins to turn the tables on them. Those folks who say, yes, they are without excuse. They do indeed deserve the judgment of God. Suddenly, when you come to the second chapter, he moves from the third person plural to the second person plural pronoun. Verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. Now, typically, when Paul uses the word therefore, he's drawing a conclusion based on the preceding verses. But in this instance, the word therefore doesn't look backward, but it looks forward, anticipating what he is about to say. In other words, he's, he's going to say, if we could paraphrase it, here are the following reasons that you are without excuse. He's saying you may be sitting high and lofty up on your perch, judging those immoral people, but let me tell you that you who judge them are just as guilty. He says, notice, for, it's a little three-letter particle in Greek, you could translate it because, and that which you judge another person, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So Paul's moving from the shamelessly immoral person to the moral man. And again, his argument is identical. They have knowledge. They've not lived up to that knowledge. And therefore, they are guilty. Now understand, the people described here in the first half of chapter 2 for the most part, would comprise those folks who would be good Gentiles. Not every Gentile in the first century world was an idolater any more than every lost person in the world today worships, say, four-footed animals or animals or, or, or men. Not all Gentiles substituted uh, darkness for light. Not all Gentiles uh, worshipped at some statue. Many a Gentile recognized that there was a single God to whom all they were accountable. And many of the historians from the day affirm that truth. 
And so Paul is dealing with a different kind of Gentile, and we will see it is distinctly different from the Jewish person that he's going to deal with in the latter part of chapter 2 when he moves to another group. And so he basically, his argument is, is when we judge another person, um, and, and let me just say parenthetically here, because I think I need to say this, before we're done, we're going to say that there is a difference between a discerning spirit and a judgmental spirit, okay? So hold that thought. But when we judge another person, when we uh, condemn another person, what are we doing? We're basically saying, I understand the standard, the standard of rightness, that this is a standard that you should keep, and because you are not keeping it, you are guilty, now, we may not do it just like the hardcore pagan of chapter 1, but while we may not have the exact same expression of sin, we will be guilty of the same sin. You may not uh, steal money, but you may be guilty of permanently borrowing something. You may not overtly commit the act of adultery, but Jesus said you can commit adultery of the heart. Uh, you may not uh, stab someone with a knife, but like what the book of Proverbs says, you can stab a person with your words. Uh, you may not be uh, defensive like some people you will accuse of being. You would just say, well, I'm just setting the record straight. Uh, you might not be stubborn like some people you will accuse of. You'll basically say, I, I, I'm just somebody with strong convictions. Uh, you may not be a liar like the person in chapter 1, but you may have a fault with exaggerating the truth a little bit. You see, the moralizer understands the standard, and he condemns those sins in other people. And so Paul is going to argue he's without excuse. Now, unfortunately, many, both in and outside of the church, don't understand the whole verse. In their mind, they've supplied a period. They would read verse 1 in this way. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for that you judge another, you condemn yourself. Period. When you judge another, they say, you would judge yourself. And so they would say, judge not, lest you be judged. But God doesn't put a period there. There's more to verse 1. He says, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Understand, the Apostle Paul, as he's inspired by God the Holy Spirit, is not uh, condemning those who would speak against sin. What he is condemning are those who would speak against the sins of others that they themselves are doing, that they are guilty of. And of course, God calls that hypocrisy. Now, I recognize that Paul is writing here of the unsaved moral man, and that will become very clear as we step through this chapter. But do not forget who the original audience is. We read Romans and often use, quote-unquote, the Roman road to convert people. But Romans was not written principally to convert people, though scores of folks have been converted by Romans. It was written to the church, to the saints who are at Rome, to grow them in the grace of God. And so, just as the moralist might condemn the depraved Gentile, we could sit here today as those of us who have met Christ in salvation and condemn the moralist and miss the application that God has for us. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount is given in really more than one place in Scripture. Same sermon, but different locations. But the location that is found in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, the greatest sermon ever preached, 
was preached on a mount of sorts, and so St. Augustine first called it the Sermon on the Mount. But you'll find it, for instance, in Luke's Gospel. It's the same sermon, but an entirely different location. One of the things the Lord did, and we spoke a little bit about this last week, like the apostles, is he often repeated himself. And one of the reasons he repeated himself is because there was always one new people. And if a pastor can't repeat himself, he's speaking against himself, that his people and he himself are not bringing new people into the church, people who need to hear it for the first time. But God knows, as Peter said, we need to be stirred up by way of reminder that we need to hear truth over and over and over again so that we know it, apply it, and can teach it to others. Matthew 7, notice what Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, we need to ask an important question. Is the Apostle Paul's evaluation in chapter 2 of the religious, uh, of the respectable moralists, of the critical moralists, is his evaluation of that person in his Jesus's statement here in Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, is that a call to suspend all critical evaluation? And of course, the answer is no. Many a person has misunderstood this passage. They'll say, ah, you speak about sin, judge not lest you be judged. I tell people there's four verses in the sinner's Bible. The one I just read, ah, judge not lest you be judged. Cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those who help themselves. And Jesus drank wine. Those are their four favorite verses. Now, understand, Paul nor Jesus is calling us to suspend all critical judgment. That's one of the things that makes us different from animals. We are made in the image of God. And that is clear that he's not calling us to suspend critical judgment from one, the context of the sermon, and the immediate context. Think your way through the sermon for just a moment. Jesus said in the fifth chapter, you're not to be like the world. He said that your righteousness is not to be like the righteous of righteousness of a Pharisee, that your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Jesus said that you are not to be like the hypocrites in chapter 6 in your giving and in your fasting um, and in your praying. Well, how can you possibly obey commandments like that, not to be like hypocrites, not to have Pharisaic righteousness, not to be like the world, unless I judge the performance of others first to see if that's true of my lifestyle? Beyond, of course, the broader context, the fact that he says there's a time for discernment and evaluation is seen in what follows just a few verses later. Look down in your text at verse 6 of Matthew 7. Jesus said, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now that sounds a little bit harsh. For Jesus Christ to refer to people as swine and as dogs. But remember, Jesus, whenever he spoke, he spoke with love. Always. Jesus, you, you can't take the, the, the fruit of the Spirit and dissect them and say, well, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those nine qualities. And so I've got one and not the other. You can no more dissect those than you can dissect the attributes of God. 
And by the way, it doesn't say the fruit of the the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit of the Spirit is, because God knows the degree to which you have one is the degree to which you have the other. So whenever Jesus spoke, he spoke out of all the attributes of God Almighty. And yet he calls some people dogs and swine or pigs in some of your translation. He called Herod that fox. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. In another occasion, he called them whitewashed tombs. And here he uses this designation. Why? Because some people are like animals, but not just any kind of animal, dirty animals. The the dogs that the Lord Jesus had in mind was not some beautiful lap dog that you'd see in a nice home. He's talking about the pariah dogs of the first century that would roam the garbage dumps, that would eat and feed upon trash. And he also refers, of course, here to swine. Now remember, Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish Christians. It's the Jewish gospel in the New Testament. And to a Jew, swine or pigs were ceremonially unclean. God forbade it in the Old Testament in their diet, not to mention they were dirty animals. They loved to play in the mud. In addition, he said a Jew would never give that which is holy or what some translate holy food, that is uh, something previously offered in sacrifice to a dog, any more than he would give a pearl to a swine. Because a pig would probably mistake it for a pea and then spit it out and trample it or maybe even attack the one who gave it to him. So the picture of the parable is clear, but what is its application? What is the holy thing that the Lord Jesus is speaking of? What is indeed, what indeed are the pearls? Well, if you don't have it out on your margin, uh, circle it or write it out there. Matthew 13, 44 to 50. Matthew 13, 44 to 50. Matthew 13 comprises the kingdom parables. Jesus, after he accuses the Pharisees of committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, one of the questions people would ask and want to know an answer to is, well, indeed, if the religious leadership of Israel has rejected God's offer of a kingdom, what is God going to do with the nation? And so in the 13th chapter, he answers that. And in that passage, which I hope you just jotted down, the pearl of great value is salvation, or by extension, the gospel message. The Lord Jesus understands when he says, do not cast your pearl before swine, he is not forbidding us to share the gospel. That would go against his heartbeat, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He has commissioned us to go into the world and to preach the gospel. He's not forbidding us to preach the gospel, but what he is forbidding us is to not share the gospel with a certain kind of unbeliever. By the way, Peter, if you remember, in 2 Peter 2, a chapter that parallels the book of Jude, he compares a certain kind of unbeliever with the same two designations, dogs and hogs. Some people are like dogs in that they return to their vomit, and some people are like hogs and that after they're cleaned up, they go back into the mud and they wallow there. Why? Because while on the outside it may look like they've been changed, on the inside they are fundamentally the same. And so there is a time when you're dealing with a certain kind of unbeliever who has such a disdain and hatred and distaste for the gospel that you are to withhold the gospel pearl. Years ago, I had the opportunity 
to hear Madeleine Mary O'Hare, it was 1978, the self-proclaimed atheist who used her six-year-old son to get prayer out of the public schools in the 1960s. By the way, God has a sense of humor. He is a committed, born-again Christian today who preaches the gospel. Nonetheless, I heard her speak. Listen, if a man can be anointed by the Spirit of God to preach the Word of God, that was a woman who was anointed by the devil. She spoke with such devilish power, such demonic hatred, precisely articulating the gospel. She unfolded the gospel exactly as it's found in Scripture, and then she spat on it and trampled all over it and made fun of it. And I'm telling you, there was a power in that room. Many a person could hardly even move when she was done. Sometimes the Spirit of God falls on a place and there's just a, 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 a quietness. A, a God's visited. I'm telling you, the devil visited that night. Years later, W.A. Criswell was at Dallas Seminary. He was, at the time, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, where he served for 50 years. I'm always amazed that the first two pastors of that church both served 50 years, two pastors in 100 years. And um, we would have, when these different pastors would come in, brown bag lunches where you could ask them questions. One of my friends asked Dr. Criswell this question. Dr. Criswell, as you look back over all your years of ministry, what was maybe the biggest mistake that you had ever done. He said, one of the most foolish decisions I ever made was to debate Madeline Murray O'Hare thinking that somehow I could convert her to Jesus Christ. There is a time when you withhold the gospel pearl. In Jesus' teaching, by that very statement in Matthew 7 and verse 6, that there's a time when you are to exercise as a Christian your critical powers. Now, I cannot say that there have been many times in my Christian life where I've done that, but I will remember a time and it is branded in my heart. I was serving on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And we were praying and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And we were in a particular uh, fraternity house, the SAEs. There was about 50 men who were present. And 25 men that night received Christ. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. And God began a revival in that fraternity house that had an impact and an influence for years to this day. Two nights later, I went into another fraternity house to preach the gospel. And about five minutes into my message of the gospel, people began to heckle and joke and make sexual innuendos about the Son of God. And, and they began to say blasphemous things. And I stopped. And I rebuked those men who were there. I closed my Bible and I left. There is a time where there is such a disdain, a hatred for holy things that you are to stop. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he told his men that when they would go, they would go to many places where there would be an openness to the gospel. And so when you came to those places where the people were open, he said, listen, they want to be hospitable to you. Receive their hospitality and, and state a blessing on that home. 
But he said at the same time, there will be some places you go where there will be a disdain for the things of God. And so he said, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. There's a time when there's such disdain for holy things that as believers seeking to share the gospel, we are to stop and, as Jesus said, shake the dust off our feet. We'll look at all that principle tomorrow when we pick up in our study of Romans and the message, The Deadliest Sin in the World. If you'd like to hear this message in its entirety, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org or download the iTunes and Android Search the Scriptures app and look up program ROM6. Of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and ask for any of our Search the Scriptures studies. However you reach us, please consider becoming a Search the Scriptures supporter. It's only through your prayers and financial support that we're able to air these programs on radio and provide at no cost the messages to listeners over the Internet. Thanks. Tomorrow we continue our look at the deadliest sin in the world. Join us then as we search the scriptures.